My name is Farah Osbeck. Welcome to Military Law Matters, the podcast that gives you insight into military law so you know your rights and you don't become a victim of injustice. Today, we'll be talking to Dana Jacobson. Dana is a lawyer who practices in San Antonio, Texas. He's a retired U.S. Air Force Reserve judge advocate and practices in various areas of law, but he has a special expertise in estate planning and probate matters. Dana will talk to us about the importance of estate planning, having a will, powers of attorney, and medical directives for everyone, especially though for military members of the armed forces. Dana discusses some examples of cases where military members died without a will and the tragic consequences not only for the person, but for their family members. You will definitely want to listen to this if you don't have a will, you don't have a power of attorney or a healthcare directive or know someone who doesn't. Hi, Dana. It is so great to have you on Military Law Matters, the podcast that serves the best listeners in the world, members and former members of the United States Armed Forces. How are you doing today, Dana? Farah, we're doing fine. It's great to talk to you. I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, yeah. It's really so great to uh, catch up with you. And I mean, just to tell our listeners that I know Dana uh, from, he, he was in the United States Air Force Reserve and I was in the United States Air Force. And Dana and I, uh, Dana helped me out by actually doing training for um, our legal assistance attorneys on estates, actually, which is what he's going to be talking about, wills and estate planning. So, but Dana, I know you're in, uh, you're in Texas now and the hurricane just went through how are how is your family doing uh well as uh, as we mentioned uh, we've got we got very little here in san antonio but both of my girls live in houston and so they were uh they both ended up having to uh evacuate to a uh, family home and then that home got flooded so they evacuated to another family home <laughs> and it took them took them several days uh, to get to us here in san antonio but that's where they are right now they and their husbands and my grandson and uh, everybody doing well thanks so much for asking uh, i expect they'll probably head back to see what the damage was uh, here in the next few days. Yeah, well, I'm glad they're well, and hopefully uh, other people in Texas are doing okay. It seems like, uh, you know, every year these hurricanes come through. So, um, Dana, you know, it is our job on the show to arm our listeners with knowledge so they don't become a victim of injustice, and I know you are ready to arm our listeners with very important information today. I want to tell the listeners a little bit about your background. So, Dana Jacobson is the managing partner of the Jacobson Law Firm in San Antonio, Texas. It's a general practice firm which concentrates in the area of small business formation and counsel, security clearance issues, estate planning and probate, health law and municipal law. Dana received his Bachelor of Science degree in radio, television and film in 1978 from the University of Texas at Austin and his Juris Doctorate degree from St. Mary's University of University School of Law in San Antonio in 1985. Dana spent six years on active duty as a United States Air Force judge advocate, and then he spent another 24 years in the United States Air Force Reserve as a JAG, retiring recently in 2006 as a colonel. Now, as part of his civilian practice, Dana Jacobson provides both simple and complex estate planning, probate, and elder law services throughout Central and South Texas, and a large number of his clients are retired military members and their families. And as a former military JAG, uh, Dana definitely knows the importance of estate planning for military members, which is what he has graciously agreed to talk to us today. And as I said, I knew Dana from our Air Force days, and he was really the expert, the go-to person for questions and answers on estate planning and had helped me out when I was working in that field uh, many years ago. So Dana, um, you know, again, so great to have you on our show and and thanks for the taking, taking your time to do so. I know a lot of things 
things going on. So Dana, let's start off with, can you tell our listeners why it is so important to have a will drawn up, especially if you're in the military? Well, you know, part of the the issue with, uh, with not having a will is when you don't say specifically who you want to get your stuff when you die, the government decides, the state decides who's going to get your stuff. That doesn't mean they swoop in and, and take everything over. What it does mean is you have to go to your state statutes that talk about uh, what's called intestate succession. That just means somebody who dies without a will. And uh, many people are surprised and shocked to hear that what they always thought was the case, that is, say, uh, I'm married, I die without a will, my wife just gets everything – is often not the case. So that's why it's so important just from a 30,000 foot level to actually complete a document that says specifically who you want to get your stuff when you die. Okay. Well, that leads me to actually the next question. So a military member who then does not have a mill, a will, so let's say it's a male military member, his, he doesn't have a will. What happens if he dies and he actually has a spouse and he has, let's say, four children? What would happen to his estate? Well, he, the answer is going to depend on what state he lives in. Okay, so because uh, federal law, as you know, uh, covers a lot of things, but things like estate planning and things like probate are really a state by state um, jurisdiction. So here in Texas, the answer might be very different than uh, there in Virginia. Uh, certain states, Texas is what's called a community property state. That means that uh, when you get married, a third estate is created and that uh, that is the stuff that the husband and wife uh, accumulate while they're married or uh, debts that they accumulate while they're married. And if you don't say in your will uh, how that's going to be treated, then you basically default to the state statute that says, um, you know, you your wife will get all of it, if the two of you here in Texas, if the two of you were only ever, ever married to each other and all of your children are children of that marriage, as you know, uh, particularly in the military, we have a number of second or multiple marriages, which means that if you die without a will, uh, the Texas statutes are going to treat your property very differently than if you uh, actually made a will. Okay. Yeah. So basically, if you don't have a will, you are just leaving things to chance, depending on what state you're a legal resident. And there's a lot of confusion with that, too. But uh, that's something that a member can ask um, their lawyer because military members move around a lot and, you know, live in different areas and they think they're a legal resident of one state when they're not when they're not. Um, so that's another I don't even know if you do you want to go even go into that at this point as far as the legal residents and where they happen to be well, stationed. Just very briefly, uh, normally, you know, you're going to, as you know, people sometimes, uh, especially military folks, uh, will decide that they want to become a resident of a specific state because it has tax benefits or something like that. Well, does that mean that's really your home or record? Maybe, maybe not. So it, as you note, it's a lot uh, broader conversation than we probably have time for right now. But you can generally say the place from where you came on active duty is going to be your home or record. And it could be that uh, your state says you're still a resident here if you died while you were absent on military duty. 
So yeah, there's a bunch of different things that things uh, that go into the the decision of where your estate's going to be probated. But basically, it comes down to if you don't do a will, you are at the mercy of the state legislature, which should make everyone quake in their boots. Okay. <laughs> so Dana, that when you were talking about the military members and the you know the states where they you know where they might actually be a resident of, I, I'll never forget in the military when we had young members come in to actually. Um, do a will or I would have people ask me, well, I want to change my legal residence to just like Texas or Florida. And it was obvious they want to do that for tax purposes. And my next question was, were you, did you ever live in those states? And they hadn't, but they wanted to change it. So that was just a funny anecdote. So, you know, people don't know better. If you, if you're not in this field, you're not going to know, but uh, you definitely have to be present in a state to even think about changing your legal residence. You have to be present and live in the state to change it. But those are the questions you have to ask your, talk to your uh, attorney about to figure out where is your will, what law is your will going to actually be um, prepared under which state. So, but how about then Dana, uh, a military member who's let's say a 19 year old you know young kid who just graduated high school he enters the military he really doesn't he's not married no kids you know has parents but it doesn't really have he doesn't have a car he's got some maybe personal belongings you know cds cd player how about someone like that and uh is it important for a young kid that age to actually have a will as well well it's it's less critical for them to however um, this kind of dovetails with uh, what you and I know about the uh, the deployment line. Uh, you know, back when I first came into the Air Force, of course, we weren't fighting anybody anywhere, but we still had to do the deployment exercises. And you'd have uh, young kids uh, come through the line. And uh, when they got to the, the benefits guys who were talking about uh, SGLI, that's Servicemen's Group Life Insurance, uh, and they were wondering who they were going to leave it to. Well, the the uh, you know E four or E five who was manning that piece of it would just say, oh, just say by law, and everything will be taken care of. Here's the problem with that. Um, as you know, when you uh, take out an insurance policy, that insurance policy lets you designate who's going to get your stuff, who's going to get that particular benefit. If you say by law, then that you have to actually have a probate. Your family has to open a probate because by law means, well, you have to look to the intestate succession statutes of your state. If you say, you know, to my mom and dad, well, the the insurance company is going to write that check to your mom and dad. They may get it anyway if you say by law, but they're going to incur the expense of having to go through probate to get the money that you could have given them just by saying, you know, to my mom and dad. So, I mean, what I've said for the last, you know, 30 years to people doing that deployment thing and filling out their SGLI is don't ever say by law. It may be easier right then, but it's a lot tougher for your family later. So I, I, I use that just to say, you know, even a 19 year old who thinks he doesn't have anything, if he put down his SGLI beneficiaries as by law, guess what? He's got $400,000 worth of estate that now has to be probated. Wow. Yeah, that is. I'm so glad you touched on that because that's July. Although it's an insurance contract, you're right. I mean, people do. I think either be, they're briefed incorrectly or they think this will handle it. So the best is to put who exactly they want it to go to in what percentage. Right? Is that correct? Exactly. Exactly. And that's kind of a one-off answer to your question, but it's something that that people don't understand how. 
um, insurance and bank accounts and that sort of thing play into whether you have to probate your estate. What we tell people here uh, at our firm is if there's any account or benefit you have that lets you designate who's going to get it when you die, do that designation because that doesn't go through your estate. It passes what's called by contract. Uh, you know, the insurance uh, companies half of the contract or your half of the contract with the insurance company is uh, pay your premiums and at some point die. Um, the insurance company's part is to accept your premiums and then cut a check to the person that you designated. Uh, your bank's uh, you know, part of the contract is if you designate what's called a POD, that's pay on death beneficiary, or a TOD, transfer on death beneficiary, the insurance company or the, uh, the bank, all they need is a copy of your death certificate, and they can move that money to the person that you designated. Otherwise, it has to go through your estate. Okay. So if you do actually designate in your SGLI, you know, you put someone's name, whether it's your spouse or your parents, do you even then, would you recommend, and I, I guess it might depend state by state, as you mentioned, since it's the laws varies from state, but should you even mention the SGLI in your will if you're actually going to prepare a will? Should you talk about it like, oh, by the way, my SGLI is going to, or is it not necessary at that point? Well, it's both unnecessary and maybe slightly counterproductive. What you don't want to do is unnecessary, unnecessarily complicate your will. Okay. So if you've got something that's already handled by a contract, I, I recommend people not even mention it in their wills. If they want to do like a, a letter to the executor or something like that that says, here's my other benefits and here's how to get them, great. That's a good idea. I wouldn't put it in the will. Okay. Good, good advice. And, and uh, to sort of uh, circle back to the 19-year-old, you know, okay, he's got some, you know, a CD player and a, you know, or a boombox or, or, you know, a few other things. Guess what? If he dies without a will and there's any, you know, concern about who gets what, well, uh, his family's still going to have to do a probate, and in that case, it's going to be what's called an airship proceeding, or here in Texas, we have what's called a small estate affidavit, where if you're, all of your non-exempt property is less than 50000 and you didn't make a will, then you can do this sort of, quote, streamlined, unquote, procedure, but it's still going to cost money. So, I mean, the best thing to do is if you if you know it's going to – there's going to be uh, – a probate action of some sort done anyway, why not just make a will? Because that makes it a lot faster and a lot simpler. Okay. Yeah. So if you want to do your family a mem family members a favor, you know, get the will done. And even in a case of the the young, um, you know, airman we're talking about was 19. I mean, he might have stuff, maybe he has something special, a baseball card collection he wants to give mm -hmm. to a, certain, a cousin. And if no one knows about it, the cousin he may have talked to perhaps saying, hey, you're going to get this is not going to get him. So it's always a good idea. So I appreciate you emphasizing that. And and maybe another more drastic example too is how about a case of a, a, a mother? She's in the military, you know, or she she does. Let's talk military member. But her husband is deceased. He was in the military. He's deceased, mm -hmm. and and he ha and she has three children. What happens to those children if she dies without a will? Uh, it, that's a, a tough uh, circumstance and and uh, not a really clear answer. But I will tell you this: what she does is runs the risk of those kids being put into the foster system. And uh, you know there there are wonderful people who work in that system, but Lord, I wouldn't want my children subjected to it. 
Um, what I mean by that is when you make a will, you may designate the guardians of your children. Um, if you don't do that and if, uh, you know, her, her parents and her deceased husband's parents start fighting over who's going to get the kids, well, the kids may well go into, you know, short-term foster care while that's going on. They've already lost their mom after having lost their dad, and now they're having to be cared for by strangers while their, uh, you know, grandparents fight it out. This sounds like it, you know, never happens, but it happens much more often than people might think. To cut that off at the pass, uh, the best thing to do is for that young single mom of three to make a will that says who will become the legal guardians of her children should she die before they have reached the age of majority. Okay. So in addition to, you know, a will telling people who you want your money belongings to go to, if you have children, it's, you know, Dana is telling it, it's critical to specify who you want the guardians to be. Otherwise, you're, you know, people might be fighting out in court and, you know, grandparents on both sides, as as Dana mentioned. So it is just absolutely critical because I know, Dana, in the military, no one can force you to have a will. I mean, you know, one, you, you cannot be forced to have one, but you absolutely do need one. That's right. And, uh, and I'll say uh, something additional with respect to that scenario, the young mom um, there is a way that your SGLI and your will can work together to provide for your children in that eventuality, and that is if you die while they're still minors. Um, you can have uh, what's called a contingent trust for minors that's in your will. That sounds complicated, but basically it's just a part of the will that says if any of my beneficiaries are under the age of, and we recommend 25, under the age of 25, at the time I die or at the time that they would take, you know, out of my will, um, then I'm going to give their portion to a trustee so that trustee can take care of the, the money that I give them until they're old enough to, uh, you know, rationally deal with it themselves. And those trusts are usually for what's called health, education, maintenance and support. What that means is, say uh, you have this contingent trust in your will for your kids. You have, in this case, uh, SGLI, your policy says, I'm giving, I'm making the beneficiary the trustee of the trust in my will for my kids. Well, with that, what happens then is SGLI and your will are actually working together so that SGLI, that $400,000 is going to fund the trust for your children. And so that means that your kids will be provided for by this, by your insurance policy, and that it'll be managed by a trustee, somebody that you trust, so that they will be best taken care of by that money until they get to the age that you specify when they can have it themselves. Okay, I'm really glad you talked about the trust because you're right. If there's a lot of money involved, and you know, just the SGLI itself is a lot of money, the trust you have to not only appoint a guardian and it, and Dana, I guess it doesn't. The trustee and guardian do not have to be the same people. You could have a guardian, I guess that's wonderful. It's going to be take great care of your kids physically, but may not be wise when it comes to handling money. In that case, you may want to pick another trustee who's uh, who can manage your money better. Is that correct? Or it, it is correct, and and uh, it's a good point. When you uh, designate a guardian. There's two things that that person is going to be or could be responsible for the guardian of the estate. That is the stuff that your kids own 
and the guardian of the person. And that is, you know, the body of your kid. So you can name a guardian of the person for your kids and then have a separate person be guardian of the estate. And that person can be the trustee as well. So that means the trustee's not having to to deal with uh, another guardian of the estate. The trustee can just say, okay, this is the kid's whole estate. I'm managing it until the age, they reach the ages that their mom specified. Okay. Yeah. And I guess the reason you said 25 is, you know, some people, you don't want to maybe have, have an 18 year old getting like $400,000 when, when they're maybe not smart, wise enough to judiciously use that. So you might pick an age where they're older and, you know, it's up to the person themselves on what they want to do. But that's the, that's the thought process behind, behind choosing an age of 25, 22, sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, people wait until, you know, they're out of college, 22, et cetera. So Right. And what, and what I was, the yeah. only thing I'd, uh, I'd add to that, Farah, is uh, basically, as you know, I mean, if, if somebody had given me 400 grand when I was 18, I would be destitute by the time I was 18 in two months, you know, because mm-hmm. you're just not ready mm-hmm. to, for yes. that kind of responsibility. The most recent, um, you know, research into uh, development and brain development basically comes down on the side of the cerebellum not be completely developed until age 25. The cerebellum is the the area that keeps you from doing stupid stuff. Okay. And so, you know, which I mean, it's a technical term you understand, but you know, that's, that's basically it. And so what we recommend is people do uh, say that until, you know, if, if they're under age 25 and we're going to do this trust and the trust will terminate at age 25 or 27. And you can do kind of one of two ways. You can say they get it all when they're 25, when each of them reaches the age of 25, or you can say, uh, have what's called a three-point distribution. Say you've got a, a distribution at age 21, 23, and 25. That gives them two chances to screw it up before before they take their last distribution, by which time the hope is that they will be you know mature enough to to deal with it uh, reasonably. Okay, I love that. That was I didn't know the the cerebral the 25. I thought uh, oh, yeah. I didn't. That's good to know. I have two sons who are under the age of 25. One's still actually <laughs> at 19 and 21. So very good. Then you know what I mean. Yeah, good to know. Very good to know. I'll have to use that when I talk to them, saying your brain is still developing. But no, that that's uh, no. I know I'm not not to like it's a serious matter, and it's, it's no, I'm no. sure it's true. I mean there still um you know still growing and and 25 is is still young very young so uh regarding the trustee um i I was going to ask you one thing so they could pick different oh i know what i was going to ask you so dana do you you should definitely discuss this with the individuals you're designating so you shouldn't just say well i'm going to pick this guardian and then never tell the person that they're chosen correct i mean you should tell them and get permission that you're going to entrust their kids to them well, exactly right. Because, you know, one, you don't want to, you know, have that person be shocked when they realize that, you know, it's it's a little bit like uh, my 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 wife has started uh, watching reruns of uh, was it Family Affair with, uh, uh, you know, Buffy and Jody yes, and those yes. things and the kids just sort of showed up on his doorstep and he had no idea. Um, that's not what you want to do, because Uncle Bill is probably the exception rather than the rule as somebody who's, you know, willing to really take that on. So, yes, I would say uh, definitely discuss it with your trustee. The other thing is that we always recommend that you have a trustee and an alternate, a guardian and an alternate, an executor and an alternate. The reason for that is some you never know when people are going to die. 
you know, or be unable to uh, to meet the responsibilities that you've asked them to undertake. So always at least consider having an alternate for each of these uh, these positions in your will. Good. Oh, that's a very good advice as well. So, um, yeah, you, you can't count on the one person being alive, too. So it's always good to have two. Good point. So, Dana, let's talk, shift a little bit to talk about uh, powers of attorney, which, again, okay. these are important. And I know, you know, people do not know the difference. There's something called a power of attorney, and then there's something called a durable power of attorney. Can you explain to our listeners what they both are and, and why you should have one or the other or both, perhaps? Yes. A power of attorney is a, gen- is a generic uh, term for a, a written instrument, which, is a, which allows somebody else to basically be you. To third parties. Um, there are two kinds generally. There's going to be the special power of attorney and the uh, durable or general power of attorney. General power of attorney is just that. Uh, that person can act in your shoes in any matter that doesn't involve health care. The special power of attorney is, for example, and I know, you know, of all our military members listening, they all know all about, you know, doing a special power of attorney in loco parentis. And that doesn't mean act like a crazy parent. It means <laughs> to act in the place of a parent. So if they're going to, you know, be TDY or they're going to be deployed, they need to have that special power of attorney that lets somebody take care of their kids as though they were their own. So powers of attorney are extremely important when you are out of pocket, either because you're physically away or because uh, you've been injured. Uh, you, you know, you got in an accident, uh, you got injured or wounded uh, and you're not able to do the things that people need to do to just kind of run their lives. So that uh, that durable power of attorney is important in this respect. A durable power of attorney, you can make basically two, choose two things. Either the durable power of attorney starts immediately and doesn't terminate even if you're later incompetent or it, uh, you sign it now but it doesn't become effective until your doctor has said that you can't manage your own affairs. Okay, so there's two different ways to do it. Make it effective immediately and it just continues on until you die or revoke it. The other one is... Uh, sign it now, but make it so that it's what's called a springing power of attorney. You sign it now, but it doesn't become effective until a doctor says that you're not capable of managing your own affairs. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. And I'm thinking really, that's just a whole new, and I I know I don't want to actually cover it in this um, segment today, but I probably want to have you back because I will tell you as we get older and there's military members that are, you know, not the 19 year olds, but in their forties, fifties and have elderly parents. That's where I'm thinking of the durable power of attorney. I know I, you know, was a caregiver for my parents and my dad Mm -hmm. had Alzheimer's. So those issues are very important in those cases. But perhaps, Dana, when you have time, we can have you back to talk about elder care, not elder care, but elder estate planning for those type of circumstances, because that's probably another topic that you can talk uh, half hour, hour about. And I'd be happy to do that because uh, that's where I am right now with my parents. Okay, because <laughs> so, you're saying the they same. They are still still able to execute these documents, but you know, we you don't know what tomorrow brings. And having those documents available for when what we say, Farah, at at this office is when you need it, it's too late to get it. Yes, 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't think about it when you're healthy and young, right? And you don't think when your parents seem to be okay. But these are things we all have to think about, you know, even when we're in the military or or not, but um, because, you you know, you help people or veterans or retirees as well as active duty. But it's it's good to know. That's why I love, uh, you know, sharing this knowledge and have experts like you talk about it because it is people don't wouldn't even think about it. You know, durable. I mean, they probably even didn't hear of the term, but when they hear these and hear someone practice this area of law and and it's just issue spotting like oh wow i think i need to talk to my parents about getting that so i i love the way you know you talking about it hopefully will help our arm our listeners as i say with this knowledge to have them think about things that they perhaps didn't even know they need so okay so how about so we talked about powers of attorney how about directives the healthcare directives uh or medical powers of attorney can you talk about what the importance of those type of documents Sure. There are two different kinds of uh, advanced directive uh, that deal with uh, your health and your mortality. Uh, one is uh, what's called the medical power of attorney, or some some jurisdictions call it the power of attorney, durable power of attorney for health care. Basically, it is something that says, in the event that I'm unable to communicate with my physicians and make treatment decisions for myself, I designate this person to be able to make those decisions for me. This is one of those, uh, you know, when you need it, it's too late to get it, things that really becomes urgent. Uh, So the idea of doing a medical power of attorney is that you're saying, in the event I'm not able to communicate with my physicians and participate in my own health care, I trust this person to uh, have my best interests at heart when they, uh, you know, make treatment decisions for me. Many jurisdictions don't allow a medical power of attorney holder to agree to, uh, you know, end of life decisions. Uh, some do, but those end of life decisions are taken up by the other kind of advanced medical directive, and that is what's called the directive to physicians, or some people call it a living will. That living will is a statement that says, excuse me, ahead of time that uh, in the event I have, and and I'm talking Texas specific here, but but it's generally the same in most jurisdictions. In Texas, it's if I have a terminal condition or an irreversible condition and my death is expected within six months, then if I'm not able to communicate with my healthcare provider, uh, I'm telling them now, either keep me comfortable and let me go, or do everything you can anyway, even if it's not going to matter. So those are sort of the two ends of the spectrum that you can can um, direct your healthcare provider to do, either just make you comfortable and let nature take its course, or intervene with what are called heroic measures, even if it's not going to matter. So the bottom line is, uh, those are the two ends of the spectrum. There is a whole uh, slew of things that you could do in between. Most people don't. Most people either pick one or the other. Okay. Yeah. And I remember, I mean, years ago, I don't remember what year this, but I remember a case and you might've heard it because it was in the news. It was when this was all getting exposure and it took place in New Jersey, which is where I'm from. Mm -hmm. But do you remember the Terry Shavo case where the lady, she was on like a respirator. I think she was in an accident and there was no directive, nothing in place. And they were fighting between the spouse and the the parents of the, it was a woman, Terry Shavo, and the parents right. said she wanted, you know, she actually wanted to be on life support and the spouse, I believe, I might 
have this wrong. It's been a while. But anyway, there was a disagreement and then she was kept on on life support. I don't know how many. I'm sure it was close to 10 years, if not more. So it's so critical. Again, you might not be thinking, you know, you're healthy and don't ever think, you know, God forbid something's going to happen. But when it does, it just creates just such a problem, such grief for the family having to deal with it. And then disputes of, you know, what did, you know, this person intend, what would they have wanted to happen? So it's like, and actually uh, the case sort of brought it back to the public's attention. The first case was Karen Ann Quinlan. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That was for or right, right when I started law school, 80, 81, 82. And that's where the directive to physician initially came from was out of that Karen Ann Quinlan case, very similar facts to the Shibo matter. Yes. She had been in a persistent vegetative state uh, for years, for maybe 20 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, you know, it had bankrupted her family uh, because they couldn't pay and that sort of thing. And out of that case came this idea of the living will or the directive to physicians. And then the Shivo case brought it back into the public's, uh, you know, eye and really, I think, was was very healthy. It was a tragic case, Shivo case, but it did have the effect of making more people think about um you know, making that decision ahead of time so that their families didn't have to when they were in the midst of all this heartache and angst of uh, needing to make a decision like that. If you've already made it, it's nobody's business. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, really, if, if anything out of the show, if our listeners, whether you know they're in the military, veterans, retirees, don't put this stuff off because it's going to be bad enough that your family is going to have to be dealing with the grief of, you know, your condition, et cetera, especially if you're in a case where you're comatose and, and then no one knows, you know, what you wanted. But then, um, you know, they're going to have to be dealing with these issues of what do we do and getting courts involved. Um, and that goes to, you know, a next question. So if there was a soldier, perhaps that, you know, did not die, but is in a vegetative state and mm-hmm. doesn't have a medical directive, doesn't have a, you know, living will. What happens in that case? I mean, I guess, again, it's state dependent, but what could potentially happen? Uh, it is state by state. Uh, I'll tell you that here in Texas, um, it is, it's uh, a lot like most states. And that is Texas has a specific sort of hierarchy that's spelled out in the statute for a long time here in Texas. Uh, a spouse could not make treatment decisions for the other spouse unless there was a specific power of attorney that allowed them to do that. Probably 20 years ago, that changed. And now in Texas, if uh, a spouse is unresponsive like that and uh, there needs to be a decision made, the other spouse may make that decision. Um, and the medical directive, you know, even if it's not one of those uh, life or death decisions, if it's just a decision on medical care and the wounded spouse is unable to communicate, the other spouse can act for and can make treatment decisions for the unresponsive spouse. Now, in Texas, if you're not married, then it goes. The next thing is the uh, the reasonably available, the majority of the reasonably available adult children of the patient. So as you can tell, once again, just like with uh, dying without a will, uh, getting sick without a power of attorney puts you at the mercy of the legislature and how they uh, how they decided people, you know, the hierarchy of people who could make those decisions would be. So the medical directive is uh, is crucial, just like telling uh, you know, the world who want you, who you want to get your stuff when you die. This tells the world 
whom you trust to make these treatment decisions for you. Okay, Dana. So you really went over a very good overview of, you know, wills, estates, powers of attorney, medical directors, and, you know, a general, you got into some detail, but, you know, every case is fact-specific. Do you um, have any other things you can think of that are important that military members or veterans should know as it pertains to estate planning? Um, you know, one of the things that uh, concerns me most is uh, when somebody is sort of in that that vulnerable period where they're um, you know they're they're about to need assistance but they don't quite yet and frankly what we have seen um, way too often is young parents will not make out wills because they can't agree on who's going to raise the kids this is a terrible reason not to do a will as we've talked about the other thing is uh, when you know you're you're about to as you and I discussed with our parents you're about to need to make decisions for your parents and uh, they're you know either they don't want to uh, acknowledge that they may actually be mortal uh, my dad's a fighter pilot go figure um, but the the idea is it, it's so difficult to have this conversation, but it is a, a crucial conversation that you need to have uh, with your parents, that you need to have with your spouse, that you need to uh, make sure that you have talked about the hard stuff and made good decisions. Yeah, that's excellent. That not, you know, addressing it is not going to make it easier down the line. It's going to make it worse. So, um, this Absolutely. is, yeah, this is not something that, you know, people should procrastinate about. Um, is there anything with that, obviously, you know, revealing client confidences or just, a, can you give us an example of perhaps a case that you maybe dealt with or know of where there was a military member who died without a will and just caused, you know, just really bad consequences or something to make it we did go over a lot of examples but anything else you could share perhaps a real world example i'll give you two examples uh, that we're uh, that we're dealing with now and have been for a while uh, a military member uh, and both of them involved uh, tragically the results of ptsd uh, i've had two uh, clients whose decedents uh, ended up committing suicide one of and neither one of them had a will. Actually, one of them had a will, but they couldn't find it. Um, and you know, and as you know, it's it, it's very unusual for a military member who has deployed not to have a will. Well, unfortunately, uh, both of these uh, people uh, did not, and uh, one of them had um, a child not by his current marriage um, and a child of the current marriage. And as, as we talked about at the beginning of the broadcast, if you die without a will in Texas and you weren't, uh, you know, all your kids weren't kids of this marriage, the, uh, the statute decides who's going to get what. And that has resulted in all kinds of problems for that particular client. Uh, another, um, was basically had uh, had some family come and get some of his stuff. He uh, he died outside of Texas. Uh, he has property and a wife in Texas, and other uh, you know an ex-wife and some children in another jurisdiction. Uh, it has turned into just a uh, as we say in Texas a real goat rope, and. Uh, had either one of them 
gone ahead and made a will, these things would have been resolved long before now. But it is uh, it is tragic. Uh, the circumstances of their deaths were tragic, but the circumstances of their survivors have been, if not equally tragic, at least much more heartache and for much longer than was necessary. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Tragedy upon a tragedy. So, exactly. so the number one takeaway, I, I guess, what would you say that like the number one of the, our discussion for the military community listening, uh, get over yourself and help your survivors. Okay. Yeah. Very important. So, so Dana, and I want to stress, you know, to our listeners that you've, you know, gone over in detail and talked a lot about estate planning and, you know, given what the the rules are, the laws in Texas, but obviously it's general advice. This is not legal advice to our listeners. It's it's general advice of what the the law is. But of course, if Correct. you want to, you know, if you need a will and you don't have one, you should definitely have a will, a power of attorney, etc. But it all everything you should definitely have these documents. But just how you make them up, how you write them, what you put in there. You, you really need to talk to a lawyer, someone who's an expert in this field, such as Dana, to go over your particular circumstances and be very honest. I mean, it's very important to be honest with your attorney so they can give you the advice you need. If your attorney does not know various things and you're withholding that, that could affect, you know, what advice they give you. So, so right. Well, and also, I'd also note, Farah, mm-hmm. that, uh, that the, the touchstone for that is if you're wondering whether you should tell your lawyer, tell your lawyer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I tell <laughs> okay. that to my clients as well. I mean, you, if you withhold information, it's not going to help because how could a, it's like a doctor. You already have to give, to, get, to give them details, him or her details on where it hurts and they can't treat you without it. So always tell your lawyer and it's confidential, of course, right? Everything you tell your lawyer is confidential, cannot be revealed by law. Um, so, uh, yeah, so tell your lawyer, don't try to, I don't want to tell them this. It's going to make me look bad. Then your lawyer will not be able to help you. So just a little note, I want to remind people, you know, it's general legal advice, uh, legal information, but not specific legal advice to your situation, but all very, very important stuff. Dana, I really want to. Thank you for all everything you're going through right now. You took the time to talk to me today and talk to our listeners and you shared such very important topics that people for some reason put off, but you know, do not put off these, uh, these very important things. So Dana, let you're in, you know, you happen to be in Texas. If someone wants to, to reach you, needs your help, how can they get in touch with you? Um, uh, we have a website that uh, they can uh, fill out a contact form and we'll get uh, with, to them within 24 hours. The website is uh, www.jacobsonlawsa.com and Jacobson is uh, J-A-C-O-B-S-O-N. Okay. And SA is for San Antonio, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, and, uh, and I know Dana, you, you know, you do estate planning, but you do other types of inf- uh, law that might be useful. So at some other point, I'd love to, when you have time, uh, talk to you, we'll maybe have you back on the show when your schedule is clear to talk about some other, like the elder law. And I know you do security clearance and, you know, business, there's veterans who are forming businesses that you might be able to give a, a slew of topics that you can certainly talk and educate our listeners on. So I'd love to have you back. And I really appreciate again, you taking the time to talk to us today, Dana. Well, Farah, I think this uh, what you're doing is uh, is really helpful and really necessary because there's uh, there's not enough information that's easily accessible out there. So uh, good for you for having these podcasts. Thank you, thank you, Dana. 
Thanks for listening today. If you want to learn more about military law topics or you're armed with knowledge, subscribe to my podcast. Head over to our website, militarylawmatters.com. And if you have a problem I can help you with or topics you'd like to learn more about, send me an email at info at militarylawmatters.com. And if you know someone who this podcast may help, please share it with them. The takeaway today is you should have your estate planning in order. Seek the advice of an attorney and be sure you have a will. Power of attorney, health care directive in place. Your untimely death will be tragic enough for your family. Don't amplify it with the tragedy of making your family suffer because you did not have your affairs in order. Until next week, stay well and never ever give up because there is always hope.